1: It's been 3,115 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February twenty seventh, 2014, and 196 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The malcontent news Russia-Ukraine war update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, despite the budding disinformation campaign from the Kremlin that the kharkiv Izium counteroffensive is already over and has failed, in our assessment, it's been a stunning success. Second, Ukraine has seized the battlefield initiative across Ukraine. Third, despite denials from the Russian Ministry of Defense and their proxies, Ukraine is continuing to expand the Inulets River bridgehead. We assess it has likely achieved a state where it can no longer be collapsed. Fourth, the Russian Ministry of Defense has limited reserves, and they're located in the wrong place to respond quickly to the Ukrainian advance. The Russian options to respond on one front will come at the cost of another. Fifth, Russia's inability to establish air supremacy remains a deciding factor for Ukraine— Ukrainians suppress and destroy enemy air defense efforts are stopping Russian efforts to end defensive operations in Kherson, Kharkiv, and Izum. Sixth, our assessment from September 6th that sham ballot referendums in Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson are out of reach was accurate. Russia has delayed ballot initiatives to November 4th, and frankly, we doubt the security situation will be any better by then. Seventh, our assessment that Russian terror attacks against civilians would increase was unfortunately accurate. Punitive strikes on civilian targets were carried out in Kharkiv and Slovyansk. Eighth, we maintain that the risk of Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure to break morale is exceptionally high and will remain so for the foreseeable future. And finally, not all victories on the battlefield are kinetic. Ukraine's continuous attacks on Russian ground lines of communication, or GLOCs, those are supply lines, in Kherson, indicate the larger plan is to collapse Russian resistance by forcing them to consume their existing supplies to the point of exhaustion. Let's get some regional updates. The counteroffensive in Kherson continues with widespread artillery fire and fighting across the region. Ukrainian forces further expanded the Inulets River bridgehead. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and pro Russian social media accounts reported that Ukrainian forces in Bilohirka were shelled and hit by airstrikes. Pro Russian social media account Rybar reported that Russian forces were on the, quote, eastern edge of the settlement, trying to push Ukrainian forces back. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported their forces attacked Andriyevka with an airstrike, further validating the expanding bridgehead, which stretches west to Novochredneve and has grown to 16 kilometers wide. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that Lozova, Kostromka, Sukistavok and Bezimen were hit by airstrikes, confirming Ukraine maintains control in all these settlements. Pro-Russian account Rybar also reported that Ukrainian forces remain in Sukistavok. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gyrkin Strelkov, claims that Ukrainian forces advanced to Chaslev and were contesting control of Bruskinsk. Chaslev is an abandoned village east of Bezimen, and we've been wondering about its status. Strelkov has consistently provided accurate battlefield assessments since May. As much as we get glee from his snark and dooming, his reports are given a lot of weight when we make decisions on the status of villages and towns. We've coded Chaslev as under Ukrainian control, not just from Strelkov's report, but also because of its proximity to Kostromka and Bezimen. Strelkov also claimed that Bruskins, called Karl Marx its Soviet rule name, was under Ukrainian control. We haven't seen any reports of artillery or airstrikes on the critical town, which would sever the T-2207 highway and cut the main G-lock to Russian forces in Davidi Brid. We've coded the settlement as contested and moved the line of conflict to the west side of the highway. Sometimes in reports, what is not said speaks more than what is. After claiming Russian forces were still clinging to the southern edge of Arkhangelsk, Pro Russian resources did not mention the town at all. We believe it is now liberated, but we'll wait for the GSAFU to make the formal announcement before updating the map. Geolocated video showed Ukrainian Marines clearing the critical settlement of Novopetrivka. Drone directed artillery enabled counter battery to destroy Mista S self propelled howitzers or SPGs. We maintain, however, that Novopetrivka remains under Russian control. Some assessment here. Ukraine's counter battery capabilities have improved significantly in the last month. The systematic destruction of Russian artillery systems removes the primary advantage Russian forces have had, which has masked their deficiency in light infantry forces. The GSAFU reported that one division of Russian artillery had lost 60% of its personnel and equipment, rendering at least three batteries combat destroyed. Ukrainian artillery and rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, and HIMARS hit Russian troop and ammunition concentrations in Novakokhovka, Kherson, Chornobayevka, Berislav, and Olishki. Russian air defenses were active in Berislav during the evening. Russian forces are attempting to build another pontoon crossing. The new one connects to the center of Kherson near one of the shipbuilding berths. Although this could be mocked as the definition of insanity, Russian forces are desperate to keep open any lines of communication. Locks, in this case, supply lines that may go across more than just the ground. Rockets fired from HIMARS struck a Russian ferry bridgehead in Kholia, Pristan, sinking a barge with Russian military equipment and personnel on it. There wasn't information on the number of casualties, but a photo emerged showing the partially sunken vessel that reportedly had two infantry fighting vehicles and 30 soldiers. If the report is accurate, losses could potentially be as high as an entire platoon. A viral video shows the pontoon crossing at Lvov being destroyed on September 4th. The graphic video, recorded by a Russian soldier in the back of a military vehicle, shows their vehicle beginning to cross the pontoon bridge when there is the sound of an explosion. The person recording appears to slump over, and blood and small pieces of flesh splatter across his lap. Two more explosions can be heard. The video then shows him screaming in pain, hyperventilating and clutching the side of his head, propped up against the side of a truck. As he moves the camera around, It pans across a scene of many severely wounded Russian soldiers lying across the pontoon deck. The video is obviously not suitable for work nor for children, and viewer discretion is advised. If you want to watch it, the link is in our full situation report on Patreon. The Ukrainian Air Force executed 13 airstrikes on Russian targets, while the Ukrainian armed forces supported 370 fire missions—that's artillery, rocket, and missile strikes— The number of airstrikes recorded by the Russian Air Force was also low compared to earlier in the week, and there were reports through open-source intelligence that parts of Kherson were shrouded in fog during the morning hours. We can't verify if those reports are accurate. Mikolaev continues to be fired on by rockets from MLRS and occasional airstrikes, but intense missile strikes have stopped since the Ukrainian counteroffensive started. Our assessment in Kharkiv and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September fifth. You can find it on Monday's episode around minute 3. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. In yesterday's Situation Report, we outlined the findings and recommendations from the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, to protect the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, that's the ZNPP. To provide some additional analysis, the carefully worded report was a condemnation of Russia's actions at the power plant, the treatment of the staff, and using the facility as a military base. Russian President Vladimir Putin dismissed the findings and condemned the report as a Western-influenced attack on the Russian Federation, saying in an interview, "...they are, of course, under pressure from the United States and Europe and cannot directly say that the shelling comes from Ukraine." but these are obvious things, End quote. Putin confirmed that members of the Rosguardia are within the plant. That's the military force that reports directly to Putin. The IAEA's role and the investigation were not to determine which belligerent was shelling the plant. The organization was very transparent that they do not have the expertise or charter to assess battle damage and potential war crimes. The IAEA reported that ZNPP was shelled again, damaging the backup power line and the nearby Zaporizhia thermal power plant. ZNPP has been operating in what's called island mode for two days, using the power of reactor 6 to run the plant and maintain cooling and water circulation on the other five reactors. Island mode is not sustainable long-term. As reported yesterday, the IAEA hinted there is an inadequate supply of diesel fuel to power the facility for 10 days— as recommended by safety guidelines. The organization called for an end to hostilities around the plant, for the Russian military to leave the facility, and to establish a demilitarized zone. Ukrainian officials asked the Russian Ministry of Defense to create a green corridor out of to allow residents in the occupied territory around the ZNPP to evacuate. Irina Verichuk, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Reintegration of Temporarily Occupied Territories, wrote on Telegram quote, The Russians are holding hostage not only the staff of the station, but tens of thousands of people on the temporarily occupied territories adjacent to the ZNPP. End quote. The Nikopol and Romadas were attacked by rockets fired by MLRS. The attack damaged 11 homes and a school building. The Russian MOD claimed that the artillery shells that landed in Enerkhodar were fired from Markhanets, but didn't provide any evidence to support the claim. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Pro-Russian accounts repeated the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, 1st Army Corps Telegram claim that Novopil has been occupied. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in the village had been shelled through the day, indicating Ukrainian forces were still in part of the village. We went ahead and split the difference and coded the settlement as contested. Otherwise, the situation is unchanged from Tuesday, with exchanges of artillery, rockets fired by MLRS, and indirect tank fire from the administrative border with Donetsk to Juliapola to Orihiv to Kamyansk. Ukrainian forces continue to put pressure on Russian troops in the direction of Tokmak and Polohy. Explosions rocked Melitopol with another Russian ammunition depot targeted in a rocket attack fired by HIMARS. Also in Melitopol, insurgents blew up the headquarters of the United Russia Party, or Edyanaia Russia, which was preparing a sham referendum for residents to vote on joining the Russian Federation. Melitopol has been a hotbed of insurgent activity that has gotten increasingly aggressive over the last six weeks. In Russia controlled Tokmak, FSB agents identified Maxim Marinov as an insurgent passing along target information to the Ukrainian armed forces. Agents attempted to arrest Marinov, who was prepared with a grenade. When they arrived to arrest him, Marinov shouted, quote, Glory to Ukraine killing himself and reportedly two Russian spetnas with the FSB. Some quick assessment here. When an insurgency reaches the point that partisans are prepared to kill themselves, occupiers could need a ratio of one soldier for every 20 civilians to restore order. Russia doesn't have those resources available, and reprisals on the population will only serve to strengthen the insurrection. Fighting was light west of Donetsk while artillery fire intensified. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR may be planning another series of larger attacks, and the artillery barrages are to set conditions. In our assessment, renewed piecemeal advances of platoon to company-sized units will be ineffective in changing the battlefield. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Optin and Perevomaisky, both without success. Russian forces were able to advance in a three-to-five-block area on the northern edge of Marenka. On August twenty-first, the DNR controlled up to seventy-five percent of the city, but was pushed back to the eastern edge of the Donetsk suburb. Ukraine and Russia have fought positional battles ever since. Volodymyrivka has repeatedly come up in GSAFU reports of being shelled. On August fifteenth, there were reports that Russian forces captured the town and we are one of the last groups of analysts to show the settlement under Russian occupation. It is common for both belligerents not to report a change of control when a town doesn't hold tactical or strategic importance. We recoded the settlement as contested. The DNR also claimed Vremivko was captured, and just like Novopil in Zaporizhia, the GSAFU reported Ukrainian positions in the village were shelled through the day. We had coded Nezkuchne to the south as contested. Based on the claim by Russian sources, we've updated the map to show that Nezkuchne is under Russian control and Vremivka is contested. Ukrainian and Russian forces traded artillery, rocket, and indirect tank fire from New York to Horlivka to Donetsk to Velika Novosilka on the administrative border with Zaporizhia. In the Bakhmut area, a reliable third-party source reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Yakovlivka and failed. The GSAFU reported the town was shelled throughout the day. The situation around Bakhmut is largely unchanged. Russian forces fought only positional battles on the outskirts of Solidar, Bakhmutska and Bakhmut, with Solidar and Bakhmut coming under heavy artillery fire. Members of the Private Military Company, or PMC Wagner Group, collapsed the Svitlodarsk bulge, capturing Kodema and pushing Ukrainian forces out of the heavily defended town. The GSAFU reported PMC Wagner was attempting to advance on Mikolaiv Kodruha, which would sever the T-5013 highway and provide a southern route to move toward Bakhmut. FSB Colonel Strelkov was unimpressed, writing on his telegram, quote, in the strategic plan, the offensive on this front was a waste of energy from the very beginning and has remained so. Only an idiot decides to attack where the enemy is most fortified and expects an attack. End quote. A quick editor's note. It appears Strelkov read Sun Tzu's Art of War and paid attention, unlike some military leaders in the Kremlin. Now, this is assessment here. Given the rapidly deteriorating situation for the Russian military theater-wide, it's unlikely that Russian troops will be able to capitalize on the capture of Kodema now. Had this been achieved six weeks ago, our view would be very different. Look, we hate agreeing with an FSB colonel and wanted war criminal, but the truth is the truth, and Strokov is dropping facts today in his doom posts. Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat failed to advance on Zaitseve or Mayorsk. They were successful in making a video, but probably not the kind they expected. A Kadirovite was filming in a poorly constructed defensive position as a group of Akhmat roughly the size of two squads were talking. Ukrainian forces ambushed them while his body camera records the entire firefight. The unit is wiped out. The person recording raises their body, exposing their head above the berm, and a short burst of gunfire rings out. He falls to the ground, with the camera quivering for a few seconds. An editor's note here. If you can stomach watching the graphic video, I recommend that you do it, because it shows the banality of war and what happens most of the time when someone dies in combat. You're there, and then you're not. No, go on without me. No, tell my wife I love her no comrades to mourn you as bullets fly over their head. This shows war for what it is. The video is, of course, not suitable for work nor for children, and viewer discretion is advised. If you'd like to see it, we do include the link to the video in our full situation report on Patreon. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 25th. To recap… The advance toward Bakhmut has been the most successful offensive since the Russian Ministry of Defense ended the 11-day operational pause on July 16. Ukraine retreated from Svitlodarsk on May twenty-fourth and successfully defended the Volcheriska thermal power plant through July 26. Since capturing the plant, Russian proxy forces— mainly PMC Wagner Group, supported by terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion and Kadyrovites of the 141st Special Motorized Regiment, have advanced all of 7 kilometers. It took Russian forces 90 days, accounting for terrain, to advance 12 kilometers from Svitlodarsk. The advance to capture Bakhmut has likely reached its culmination point, with Russian combat power exhausted in this region— before the arrival of HIMARS and improved Gloc interdiction, Russian military leaders would saturate the region with artillery and rocket fire and win an attritional battle. Due to excessive use and deferred maintenance, Russian artillery systems are wearing out. Ammunition supplies are becoming an issue theater-wide, although the issue is relative. Even at 40% of the peak daily fire rate in late June, the quantity of artillery fired remains significant and greater than Ukraine's capabilities. A key difference from late June is that Russian artillery firepower is no longer concentrated on a single axis, such as Luhansk. According to data analysis by Ragnar Gudmundsson, the number of settlements targeted by Russian artillery increased from 50 on June 26th, to almost 100 on August 12th, So fewer artillery pieces, fewer shells, spread over a larger area. Russian forces could capture Bakhmut and Soledar before the arrival of Rasputitsa, also known as mud season, but it would require reallocating artillery pieces and military units from other axes. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, Russian forces attempted to advance on Ryurivka and were unsuccessful. Russian troops fired artillery on Siversk and the surrounding towns. They also shelled Ozern, confirming Ukrainian troops were still present, and shelled Spirna, raising the question, were Russian forces pushed out? There was a reliable report that Russian troops in Liman were being withdrawn and moving to pisky Radkivsky, northeast of Izium, on the east bank of the Oskil River. There have been reports by Russian sources that the troop presence in Lyman was thin, and the occupation forces were incapable of supporting the population. Some quick assessment. We don't have enough intelligence to determine if this is a purposeful retreat from Lyman and yielding the settlement back to Ukraine, or a panicked response to the collapsing Izum Axis. Moving the limited number of Russian forces to pisky Radkivsky does not put them in a location where they could immediately engage with advancing Ukrainian troops. Our assessment in northeast Donetsk is unchanged from August 18th. To recap, back on August 14th, we assessed there would be continued sporadic fighting in northeast Donetsk, but we did not anticipate renewed significant combat operations. The 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, is combat ineffective and incapable of carrying out offensive operations even with the support of Russian artillery. The destruction of the command center for the 2nd Army Corps in Lysychansk and the PMC Wagner Group headquarters in Popazna may have degraded decision-making capabilities. We maintain that any additional fighting in this region before mud season will be positional, spoiling attacks, and probes.
0: You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com
1: at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, starting with the Azuma Axis. Ukrainian forces have made absolutely stunning progress north of Izum, liberating 400 square kilometers of territory in a day, and are on the brink of capitalizing on the tactical victories. Advancing almost 40 kilometers in 36 hours, Ukraine executed a blitzkrieg across the Kharkiv oblast. Numerous videos showed destroyed and captured heavy artillery and MLRS batteries across Kharkiv With their crews killed by small arms fire, indicating that defensive lines had collapsed entirely. The breakthrough happened so fast that Russian artillery units couldn't relocate or evacuate. Most of the equipment appears to have been captured intact and can be pressed into use by Ukrainian forces. Ukraine has moved in five thrusts, masterfully executing combined arms tactics at a multi brigade level. Involving armor, infantry, artillery, and air force assets. The first thrust was toward Balaklia. Ukrainian troops broke through Verbivka while striking from the south, creating panic. DNR and LNR troops retreated, leaving Russian military police to defend Balaklia. Russian leaders claimed Balaklia was hit by a, quote, fist of tanks, representing 15 vehicles. Simply put, Balaklia was plunged into chaos by an armored company, partly because the military police didn't have heavy weapons to counter. Ukrainian forces secured the ammunition depot and its contents in Verbivka and the arsenal in Balaklia. But none of this was the main objective. The second thrust was further north, launched from Prishib. Ukrainian forces flanked Russian positions by capturing Yakovenkov and severing a route of retreat by taking the T-2210 highway. However, they weren't done. Ukrainian forces moved north on the T-2210 and then swung south to Brychadrivka. Some assessment real quick. Ukrainian forces are now 16 kilometers from the critical highway intersection in Vesele, where the M 3 and P-78 highways meet. Capture Vesele, and you've severed the main G-lock to Izium. It also creates a deeper encirclement of the Russian forces now trapped in the southern half of Balaklia without access to heavy weapons. PMC Wagner reported that Ukraine was advancing on Vesele but facing resistance. We can't confirm the veracity of the claims, and Wagner has returned to the disinformation space after being rattled in the last 24 hours. The third thrust came from the south of Balaklia, liberating Bayrak and Nova Husarivka, where Russian forces were cut off from retreating into Balaklia because the bridge was destroyed last month. Ukrainian forces took numerous prisoners and captured a significant amount of equipment. From Zaleman, Ukraine crossed the Seversky Donets. Disorganized Russian forces in Sevinsky couldn't mount a defense, enabling a surprising number of troops to move into the city over what should have been a contested wet crossing. This further encircled Russian troops in Balaklia, neutralizing the force's ability to defend Vesele and the critical highway intersection. The fourth thrust is the most audacious. Initially swinging south, Russian military leaders were fooled into believing Balaklia was the main objective. The main battle group swung northeast, driving 30 kilometers in 24 hours, almost uncontested, to the city of Shevchenkov. But wait, there's more. The fifth thrust was launched south of Chukhiv, broke through Russian defenses in Chikalovsky, and started to advance on Shevchenkov. Russian military commanders appear to have taken the bait the second time, rushing to reinforce the city in the face of a rapidly moving Ukrainian advance. Pro-Russian channels declared that the counteroffensive would be stopped, and NASA firms suggested there was heavy fighting in the southern part of the city. While all these attacks were launched and executed to near perfection, Ukrainian artillery, rockets from MLRS, and HIMARS pounded the Russian-occupied city of Kupiansk. Some assessment here. Kupiansk sits at the top of the Oskil Reservoir and is split in two by the Oskil River. Its railroad yards and highway intersections are the vital transit hub that supports and supplies the entire Izum Axis for Russia and the northeastern part of the Kharkiv Oblast. Capture Kupiansk, and the Russian forces to the south are cut off from their supplies and the main route of retreat. Ukraine's plan is even more audacious. The mechanized infantry brigade locked Russian forces in place at Shevchenkov and destroyed their artillery lines through the advance. Ukrainian forces have reportedly turned east and are advancing to take Kupiansk. The Russian administration announced the evacuation of civilians due to the constant shelling and the advancing Ukrainian forces. Fighting continues in Shevchenkov, and Wagner is reporting a more organized defense of the southern half of Balaklia has started. But by all appearances, Balaklia isn't the objective. Wagner also admits that the real thrust on the southern end of the counteroffensive is for Vesele. Wagner claims that Ukrainian forces have overextended themselves and no longer have artillery support, but the reports from Kupiansk and the ongoing evacuation don't support that. Wagner then pivoted just seconds later and, much like Kherson, declared the counteroffensive was over, destroyed by Russian aviation and artillery. Back to assessment here Nothing supports that there weren't any successes gained. In the near countless videos on the internet now showing a large number of Ukrainian successes, Russia lost a Su 25, Mi 24, and Mi 52 alligator attack helicopter yesterday from Ukrainian air defenses. The Kremlin is taking over the information space with the standard everything is going according to plan messaging. Further, the Russian Ministry of Defense did not report any great victories from air operations in the region. Russian aircraft continue to stand off and attack from the maximum range with non-precision weapons due to Ukrainian air defenses. Russian forces have almost no available resources that are fresh and hours away. Corruption within the Russian armed forces reportedly had some units staffed at 100% on paper, but in reality, were operating at only 20% of their combat power. Look, if Russian forces had available combat power— they would have been advancing on Slovyansk weeks ago. Twenty-four hours ago, the Wagner Telegram Channel, the reverse side of the medal, wrote what could be construed as a goodbye to their forces in Izum, saying, quote, Izum prepares for battle. We wish good luck to our soldiers, veterans, ordinary soldiers and officers. The enemy is preparing a strike not only from the north, but also from the south. In the area of Dolina, reserves—and— by that they mean Ukrainian reserves, are accumulating and the enemy is deploying tanks in attacking formations. End quote. Okay, more assessment. Will the real offensive please stand up? We'll know in another 48 to 72 hours, but Wagner's latest, quote, report appears to be a Kremlin-directed disinformation campaign. Interesting that after declaring all according to plan, Wagner wrote what could be described as a telegram storm quote, I hope that the heroes who slipped on Kamaz trucks to Balaklia have already been presented for the award. End quote. Reinforcements slipping onto evacuation trucks flowing into Balaklia to help with the last stand, who deserve a quote, victory glock that generals get, end quote. doesn't sound like all is well to us. In northern Kharkiv, Russian forces launched attacks on Petomnik and ruski Tishki north of the city. Neither attack was successful. There were Russian missile attacks on Kharkiv, and there's more information on that in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Our assessment in Kharkiv is unchanged from August twelfth. To recap, our assessment that Russian forces were testing the capabilities of the Ukrainian Territorial Guard taking over the defense of Izum, was correct, positional fighting, reconnaissance, and probing for weaknesses will continue to occur. To the north, in the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zavitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported only the Romada of Asmen was shelled, with seventeen mortars fired from Russia. Let's talk about developments theater wide and outside Ukraine. Bill LaPlante, the United States Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, confirmed that the Ukrainian troops that sunk the Russian warship Vasily Bek with a harpoon surface-to-surface missile were trained in the United States. The harpoon was not designed as a land-based missile. Working with Ukrainian engineers, the two nations innovated a solution to remove the launchers from a ship and attach them on a flatbed truck. LaPlante said, There's incredible innovation going on right now, and we just don't talk about it enough. He added that Ukrainian forces had since sunk another Russian warship with the harpoons. He did not, however, specify the ship's name. On the same day, the GSAFU confirmed that a Ukrainian missile attack is what destroyed more than a dozen aircraft at the Russian naval airbase at Saki. Valery Zalushna, the general commander of the armed forces of Ukraine, implied there had been other long-range missile attacks but didn't provide additional details. The Russian delegation to the United Nations has called for a session with the Security Council to complain about NATO weapons being sent to Ukraine to support their war effort. The UN meeting will happen at the same time the Ramstein 6 working group meets. The group, led by the United States, represents more than 50 nations coordinating military, economic, and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Moscow had expected support to wane, but as Ukraine has proven capable beyond most expectations and Russian war crimes have accumulated, support has only been galvanized. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. As we had assessed, Russian forces would likely turn to terror attacks on civilians in response to the ongoing counteroffensive. Russia fired rockets from MLRS and used S-300 anti-aircraft missiles to attack Kharkiv, killing at least two people. The Industrialny and Nemishlyansky districts were targeted. We expect a dramatic increase in punitive strikes on Kharkiv in the coming days. The city of Slovyansk, which is all but out of reach for a Russian attack, was shelled anyway. A rocket or missile destroyed an apartment building, killing three people two men and a woman. In addition, a school and a specialist hospital clinic were destroyed. Almost 90% of the population of Slovyansk has evacuated. The remaining people are critical infrastructure workers for fire, water, and electricity—the poor, the sick, and the elderly. In geopolitical news, Russian officials have announced the sham votes in the occupied territories to become part of Russia have been delayed to November 4th, as we had previously reported. Andrei Turchak, the first deputy chairman of the Council of the Federal Assembly of the Russian Federation and secretary of the General Council of the United Russia Party, made the announcement. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone.